Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to New Scientist Weekly. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. On the show this week, we have really encouraging news about new drug treatments for COVID, and we're learning about how touch receptors in the skin are involved in sexual desire and social bonding. We're also going to Venus and to the asteroid belt on a new mission from United Arab Emirates, and we're rounding up the Nobel Prizes, which have just been announced. But first, there was really long-awaited news this week with the approval by the World Health Organization of the first malaria vaccine. Yeah, this is the RTSS vaccine. It's been in development for 37 years. It's one of the longest awaited vaccines in history. And it's really hard to overstate what a massive piece of news this is. Malaria kills at least 400,000 people a year, mostly children. And, you know, throughout human history, it's perhaps killed half of all people who've ever lived. It's hard to get your head around that, isn't it? Um, And we've had our eye on this vaccine, the RTSS vaccine, for a while because there have been pilot programs in Kenya, Ghana and Malawi. Uh, But now, based on the results there, it's now going to be rolled out for general use among children in sub-Saharan Africa and other regions with moderate or high rates of malaria. We'll put a link in the show notes to a story about this vaccine. And one reason it's taken so long to develop is that scientists had to work out which stage of the malaria parasite would be best to target because it changes as it grows throughout the body. And RTSS works by triggering an immune response to fight off the parasite at a very early stage just after infection. It's such an advance, but actually this is only just the start, really. There is another vaccine with a higher efficacy rate currently in development. So it's really looking like we're starting to turn the tide on this terrible illness really soon. Really good news to start the show with. Now we're going to hear about an original take on how to really get action on reducing carbon emissions. Andreas Malm is a writer and academic at Lund University in Sweden and also a pretty hardcore environmental activist. His book is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline and it makes the case for escalating environmental protests from mass civil disobedience to property destruction. Rowan spoke with him about his ideas. I first asked him why the climate movement is so focused on non-violent resistance. I find it very hard to accept the reading of history that people from the leadership of Extinction Rebellion, for instance, have uh, 
promoted, uh, namely the, the idea that if you read the history of past social struggles for progressive courses, what you find is that those that have succeeded have steered clear of any kind of violence and only engaged in absolutely peaceful civil disobedience. Cases that are adduced to support this claim range from the abolition of slavery to the suffragettes to the civil rights movement to various anti-colonial victories. And in each and every one of those cases, you can very easily find very significant components of militant confrontation. So it's a kind of a peace washing. It's a white washing that, that's going on here. And it's very difficult to make a well-founded, substantiated historical case for this strategic pacifism, the idea that the only things that, thing that ever works is completely peaceful civil disobedience at the most. We are facing an uphill battle. We are struggling against an extremely powerful enemy that has enormous material forces at its disposal. So why do we believe that the climate struggle could be victorious with less effort than any of these previous struggles? One worry that I would have is that, you know, we can feel that we're building momentum now and public support with more and more people getting on board. You know, what if we start blowing things up, we might lose that. (laughs) And and certainly you can imagine how you'd lose the the media immediately and 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 you mentioned the recent things going on in the UK i mean that's been not non-violent demonstrations by insulate britain and they've just been blo- blocking roads but people have been very upset politicians have become very upset but you're suggesting we we should go further so on the scenes that have played out in uk highways in recent weeks these scenes are somewhat heartbreaking i have to say I feel extremely torn about them because on the one hand, I obviously I understand the um, desperation of the activists in Insulate Britain and obviously I sympathize with their demands and with the idea that we need to disrupt business as usual. But the scenes where working class mothers are begging these activists to get out of the way so they can go to their workplaces and put food on the table for their kids, not to mention the woman who was uh, trying to get to the hospital drive me crazy because you don't want to make these people your enemy because they are not your enemy. The idea that you indiscriminately target traffic is problematic because working class people have no choice but to rely on that traffic to uh, reproduce themselves and their families and, uh, and, and live. My argument in this book is not that we should go out and engage in indiscriminate disruption or property damage. You need to be precise. You need to be targeted and you need to be selective and and discriminating when you engage in these kinds of action. This past summer, when we had all of these climate disasters, ranging from the floods in Germany to the extreme wildfires in the U.S., Pacific uh, West, California, the floods in New York. I mean, you know, the whole list of these things. At some point, what people need need to do in this movement, climate activists, in, in moments like this, is to shut down the sources themselves, as in taking over and taking apart uh, the infrastructure that is causing these catastrophes. and do that as a way to demonstrate to people that we cannot go on 
having this infrastructure, the sort of most advanced uh, stage of the struggle that we've had in Europe so far, I think, is in the form of climate camps, where you have large groups of people congregating in a camp and then going to a fossil fuel installation and blocking it or entering it and shutting it down. There was a, a small but successful uh, camp of that kind in Scotland in late July at the Mosmoran refinery owned and run by, by Exxon and Shell. And uh, these things, I, sh- I think, should happen much more and they should happen in conjunction with the disasters themselves. So we should try to organize these camps and time them to the moments of impact to, ma- to make this point across. And I do think that if you go about this in an intelligent fashion, there is certainly a potential to win people's support for it. You're very clear in the book and in, when you speak about opposing violence against people and being very careful not to harm people. But I wonder that if we did escalate activism to damage against property and to sabotage, that it might encourage black ops wings to spring up in the movement that do actually take action against people. And Of course, there is a risk of that sort. And my point here is not that diversifying our tactics and stepping up in this fashion is a risk-free endeavor. It comes with risks that have to be dealt with somehow. My point is, we are so late in the day, the mitigation of the climate crisis has been postponed for so long that there is no risk-free option left anywhere. More and more discussions are about solar geoengineering, for instance, which is completely saturated with risks. Carbon dioxide removal in its various forms comes with risks. If you were actually to launch extremely radical emissions cuts of, of the kind we need, say by 7 to 10% per year, that runs the risk of some kind of state authoritarianism because you would require very intrusive planning by states for that to happen. Going on with peaceful, uh, gentle protests has the risk of being completely ineffective. And yes, escalating into property destruction has the risk that there will be spirals of violence and there will be some who take it to the next level and so on. The way to deal with this risk in when it comes to escalation would be, in my view, to have a very clear collective discipline about not taking up guns or uh, engaging in armed violence of any kind. And we have, again, plenty of cases of movements that have been successful in maintaining that border and not transgressing it. I have no guarantee that this would be the case in a more militant climate movement, that this uh, distinction would be upheld between violence against property and violence against people. But I just think that the time has come to consider dealing with this risk rather than just saying there is a risk that things will go bad, so we just have to leave it at that and sit back. Now, we're going to hear a bit about the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine later in the show, but let's just mark the occasion of the other two big ones. Yes, the Physics Prize went to three researchers for two discoveries that the Nobel Committee said represent groundbreaking contributions to our understanding of complex physical systems, such as weather and, on longer timescales, climate change. This is why the Physics Prize caused great delight this year amongst climate scientists. 
Yeah, it really did. Uh, one of the recipients is Sukuro Manabe at Princeton University. He wrote a climate modelling paper in 1967 that was voted the most influential of all time by climate scientists in a poll in 2015. And basically, in a nutshell, the paper was the first credible prediction of, of what would happen to the atmosphere if carbon dioxide levels changed. And that laid the foundation for all climate models that we use now. Massively important and amazing to think of that work being done in 1967, isn't it? Um, it's no wonder climate scientists are so delighted for him. Um, what about the other ones? <laughs> yeah, so the big news was that uh, the mRNA vaccine against coronavirus that's given us a lifeline during the pandemic and saved hundreds of thousands of lives, that didn't win anything. Yes, or I guess it could still get the Peace Prize, maybe. Uh, yeah, well, that would be <laughs> awful. Yeah, I think that the simple thing here, though, is that the success of the vaccines just wasn't quite clear enough by the end of January this year, which was when the nominations for the awards closed. Yeah, I guess. But if you think about it, researchers and industry have cut the time it takes to develop a vaccine from 10 years to one. So maybe the Nobel Committee could have been a tiny bit more flexible about its deadlines this year. Um, but surely it's, it's a must fire win for, for next year, I'd have thought. Yeah, although it's got malaria to contend with now. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll hear about the Medicine Prize in a bit. But the Chemistry Prize, who did that go to, Penny? It went to a couple of men, as so many Nobel Prizes do, um, this time to Benjamin List and David Macmillan for developing an entirely new kind of catalyst for making chemical reactions take place. And this allows chemists to choose the handedness of their molecule. It's really important, um, this technique in drug design, so that you get uh, types of a molecule that are one way or another, that you don't get mixes of the mirror images of these structures. I just saw um, someone tweeting a picture of Samuel L. Jackson and then the reflection of him saying Samuel D. Jackson. So <laughs> good, uh, chiral, joke, chiral in joke there. Yeah, <laughs> come here for all your niche chemistry humour. Um, really a, a significant advance there. Yeah, and the work also makes it greener as well as easier to do chemistry. Yeah, it's cool science. Um, so we'll post links to our Nobel coverage in our show notes so you can find out more. Time out, we're running an amazing online lecture next week and we want to tell you a bit about it. Yes, on Thursday the 14th of October, Lisa Barsotti of MIT's Kavli Institute for Astrophysics is giving a talk on gravitational waves. Yes, it's the era of gravitational wave astronomy. Uh, that began in 2015 with the first detection of gravitational waves from a binary black hole system. These are waves in space-time caused by the collision of two black holes, and since then tens of events have been detected, and it's established a new way of studying the universe. Lisa Bassotti's talk is called Listening to the Universe with Gravitational Waves. It's running 6 to 7pm UK time and 1 to 2pm Eastern US time on the 14th of October, and will be available to watch on demand from then onwards. Tickets are £15. Go to newscientist.com slash gravitational waves in one word to find out more and to buy your ticket. Newscientist.com slash gravitational waves. And now COVID drugs. Now it feels like the announcements about new treatments are starting to come thick and fast now, aren't they, Penny? Yeah, it feels like there's been a real uptick in recent weeks. And, and that's obviously really great news. Um, now that we have effective vaccines, the big scientific challenge is to find better ways to treat the disease in either people who can't get vaccinated, or people who develop a breakthrough infection. And of course, people have been looking for effective COVID-19 drugs since the start of the pandemic. And it feels like we're really starting to see some of the fruits of that work coming through now. 
So what are the latest drugs that we're hearing about? So on Monday this week, we heard interim trial results from Merck for a drug called Molnupiravir. <laughs> drug <laughs> names are so horrible. I'm glad you had um, to say that one. <laughs> Molnupiravir. Anyway, it appears to roughly halve the risk of hospitalisation or death in people who have COVID-19. The trial involved adults with mild to moderate COVID-19, but, but these adults were deemed to be high risk for developing severe forms of the disease. And the results were so encouraging that independent experts who were monitoring the trial recommended that they actually stop the trial early. And the company is now going to apply for emergency authorization um, for use in the US. The drug works by introducing RNA-like molecules into the virus's genome. And this basically stopped the virus from multiplying and introduces a bunch of mutations that kind of stops it in its tracks. And it may become the first drug in the US that you can actually take at home to fight the virus. So that's really great stuff from an antiviral approach. Um, And what's going on with attempts to use antibodies to fight the disease? Yeah, so then on Tuesday, it was announced that AstraZeneca has applied for emergency use in the US of an antibody therapy called AZD7442. Easier to say, but maybe that's catchy. Um, So this one uh, sounds really exciting, actually. It's an injection of lab-made antibodies that you would give to people who don't have strong enough immune systems to respond well to a vaccine. So the idea is that you get this injection and the antibodies then circulate in your body and give you several months protection against infection. And in their trial, the drug was found to reduce the risk of someone developing coronavirus symptoms by 77%. And and actually, the makers hope that the drug might even work for a full year that they're waiting to see. So would that be the first antibody drug for COVID? No, so there's already one approved in the UK. And uh, that actually started being given to some hospital patients last month. Um, This one's called Ronapreve. And it's a combination of two lab made antibodies from Roche and Regeneron. And that one is given to people who aren't managing to mount their own immune response against the virus. And it's been found to cut the length of time in hospital by four days and cut the risk of death by a fifth. It's getting really exciting, isn't it? And and what a change from the early days of, of the pandemic when all the research efforts were understandably focused on whether we could repurpose existing medicines as, as COVID treatments. Did any of that actually work? Yeah, so in some cases, there are a few. Um, the, the one that most people might have heard of is uh, the antiviral drug remdesivir it does seem to shorten recovery time. But for example, the old malaria drug hydroxychloroquine, that wasn't found to be useful. And at the moment, there's actually quite a lot of attention on ivermectin, a drug used to treat parasites in people and animals. Yeah, I've seen so many headlines about that. So what but what is the evidence for that it works? So there isn't really convincing evidence that it works <laughs> yet. Um, there are some trials underway, though. But there has been this worrying trend of people in the US and elsewhere trying to source ivermectin to self-medicate against COVID-19. And, and that could be really dangerous. We've got a really interesting investigation in the magazine this week looking at groups in the UK who are trying to source this drug as part of so-called buyers groups. Yeah, and and we should stress that it's not a good idea. You should only take drugs under the guidance of your doctor. But overall, COVID drug discovery does seem to be in a really good place at the moment. Yeah, the thing that I keep thinking is, you know, this is another reason why letting the virus rip through the population right away was never a good idea. The longer we can hold off waves of infection, the better our treatments become for those who then eventually catch the virus. turn to a story on touch, which is probably the sense we most take for granted. Until the pandemic hit, we might have thought that perhaps vision or hearing are, for many people, their most important senses. 
But 18 months of forced social isolation for much of us has been quite a good reminder of how essential touch is to our daily lives. Rowan spoke with reporter Alice Klein about new research looking at how touch receptors in the skin are involved in social bonding and even in sexual desire. Alice, so to begin with, why do we need a sense of touch? That's not a stupid question. (laughs) Well, there are a few obvious survival reasons, like being able to sense a surface that's too hot. And actually, this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was announced on Monday, recognises the two scientists who discover how our skin detects heat, cold and pressure, which is clearly very important. But there is another type of touch that's often a bit overlooked, and that's the kind that we use to build social bonds. For example, think a parent stroking their child's face or a friend reassuringly touching your arm or a lover's caress. And that's something that people have really missed during lockdowns and social distancing So do we understand much about how touch strengthens social bonds? We're starting to understand a little bit. Um, The first clues came in the 90s when researchers discovered these nerves in the skin called C-tactile fibres. And actually, at first, they didn't really know what they were for. Um, They did a few different experiments and they found that they responded most to soft, slow stroking at speeds between about 1 and 10 centimetres per second. And when those nerve fibres are stimulated, they appear to send messages to brain areas involved in emotion and pleasure. Then more recent studies have found that this kind of gentle touch plays a role in numerous social relationships, like between parents and children. So, for example, when parents stroke their baby's forearms or shins at speeds known to activate C-tactile fibres, and they usually do this with sort of soft paintbrushes, their heart rate's slow, and that suggests that they find it very comforting just laughing at thinking of stroking a baby's shin with a paintbrush. But but now there are new clues that the nerve fibres in the skin are involved in sexual arousal as well. Isn't it kind of obvious that, you know, if you have your partner stroking your skin nicely, it might get you in the mood? Yes, well, we think it intuitively. But if you think about the actual mechanics of sex, it's not obvious that the skin needs to be involved, right? So it's not like your partner running their finger down your spine is directly resulting in offspring. <laughs> but new research in mice suggests it might increase the rewarding nature of sex so that you're more likely to want to reproduce in the first place. I hesitate to ask, but what did the study in mice involve? Well, the researchers from Columbia University in New York, they basically genetically engineered mice so that they could activate these C-tactile fibres in their skin with blue light instead of physically touching them. So they could just shine the the light on their skin. And when they use blue light to artificially activate these nerves, they found that the females arched their backs in a similar way to when they were preparing for sex, even though they were actually totally isolated at the time. Wow. And the mice also experienced a rush of dopamine in their nucleus accumbens, which is a pleasure center in the brain. And then interestingly, when they engineered female mice without these nerves, They didn't get the same dopamine rush when males tried to mount them for sex. Instead, they actually turned aggressive and tried to fight them off. And the researchers who did the study said that this hints that these nerves convey messages to the brain to encode a sensation that is necessary for the rewarding nature of sexual touch. Wow. Okay, so in mice, it seems that this skin-to-brain circuit helps to increase sexual arousal. But do we have any idea if that's the same thing going on in humans? Well, we know very little about what's going on in humans, and we can't really genetically engineer people to do the same kind of study. But there are clues that C-tactile fibres are involved in human sexual desire too. 
For example, people report feeling erotic sensations when their forearms, inner thighs, necks and foreheads are softly stroked at speeds known to stimulate these C-tactile nerves in the skin. So that's about three centimetres per second. And actually, if the stroking is 10 times faster or 10 times slower, it doesn't activate these fibres and it doesn't feel erotic. And then conversely, people who undergo surgery that damages these C-tactile nerves are no longer able to feel any erotic sensations when their skin is touched. And finally, there's also research showing that a type of sex therapy called sensate focus, in which couples explore touching each other's bodies but without having intercourse, is quite useful for treating low sexual desire and erectile dysfunction. But these are still pretty preliminary findings because we still know very little about the neural mechanisms of human sexual desire. Okay, so if we understand that C tactile nerve fibres, you know, we accept they're involved in these different social relationships, but do we know how the brain distinguishes between the different contexts Because like, you know, you wouldn't want to sort of bump into someone or if someone accidentally brushes your arm in the right way, it wouldn't want you to get all ready for sex, basically, would you kind of by accident? (laughs) No, no, I think context is very important here. And we don't really know how your brain differentiates between those different contexts, but it probably uses other cues to interpret the signals that are coming from those C tactile fibres in your skin. And so, you know, that's why, as you say, someone brushing you in the street isn't going to get you, you know, all excited. Um, And there actually may even be differences within the same relationship. So if you think about a new couple, for example, maybe activation of those C tactile fibres in the skin might be a more erotic thing, whereas in a more established couple, it might signal something like security and comfort. But we we just really don't know a lot about how these top-down processes in the brain work yet. Now, next up, it's news of another space mission from the United Arab Emirates. We reported on its Mars mission in an early podcast of ours, didn't we, last year? Yeah, that was a really impressive mission. And the UAE Space Agency is not sitting around now. Uh, It's just announced another one scheduled for launch in 2028. And that's going to the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. But first, it's going to Venus. Mm, So two cool locations for the price of one mission. (laughs) Yeah, so it's going to Venus really as a as a gravity assist swing to build up speed to fly back round and go to go on to the asteroid belt, um, and it's going there to observe a total of seven main belt asteroids, and then it's going to land on an asteroid at the end of the mission. It's really ambitious, isn't it? I, I saw this quote from Sarah Al Amri, chair of the UAE Space Agency, saying that to accelerate the space program in the Emirates requires the pursuit of goals that go beyond prudent or methodical. <laughs> Can you imagine someone at NASA saying, we want to go beyond prudent or methodical? I cannot, no. (laughs) Um, She also said, when we embarked on the Emirates Mars mission, we took on a six-year task that was in the order of five times more complex than the Earth observation satellites we were developing. This mission is on the order of five times more complex than the Emirates Mars mission. Yeah, I saw that. And it made me wonder, like, uh, what are they going up by five each time? So, (laughs) you know, what's five times more complex than a a mission to the asteroid belt? God, is it going to be people on Mars? Well, that's what I thought. um, And I asked our space reporter, Leia Crane, about this. And she thought maybe it would be a mission to the outer solar system. And that would would be five times more complicated or a, a lander on Venus. Or maybe something that has really serious planetary protection requirements, like uh, a lander on Enceladus. 
but she said landing people on Mars would be about like at least a hundred times more complicated. Right, useful to know. <laughs> yeah, uh, but back to the current mission. There's loads of interest about Venus, of course, with the possible observation of a biological molecule in the atmosphere of the planet. Yeah, and we've got a story in the magazine this week about the length of time we now think Venus was habitable. It's not great news as it cuts down the period to only the first billion years of its existence. <laughs> okay, only the first billion years. Great, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Penny, and thanks, Alice, for joining us this week, and our guest, Andreas Malm. And thanks to you for listening. Do tell all your friends about the show, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.